and welcome to episode 80 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. This is our last episode of the year and I thought it would be great to put together 10 great sound bites from our guests. There's so many more, but I think you'll like these 10. Before we get started, I'd like to say a few things. First of all, thank you to all you listeners from all over the world. I'm really grateful for the listens and also for the nice messages we receive. Thank you very much. They really mean a lot to me and encourage me to put out a new episode every week. We are slowly growing week on week and closing in on 100,000 downloads. In 2020, we recorded over 50 episodes and we hope to do the exact same in 2021 with more great guests. Many of you are also followers on the main Functional Tennis account where we now have over 307,000 followers and we've posted over 7,200 times. It's crazy. We also have a specific podcast account, if you didn't know, on Instagram. Make sure to follow us. Just go to your Instagram app and search for Functional Tennis Podcast and hit the follow button. Sometimes we share some extra clips from the episodes there and other information from our great guests. On our website, functionaltennis.com in 2020, we added the pro and kid-sized pointer to our range, the tennis mount and also hats, which are amazing, if I must say, as well as more shipping options. Lockdown wasn't so nice to us and Christmas loads with postal partners being so busy meant huge delays, which is an ongoing struggle at the moment. But we now have more shipping options than ever. And moving into 2021, this gives you, the customers, a lot more options. And we'll also have new products later in 2021. So really excited for functionaltennis.com. We also began our webinar series with seven great talks from experts in the game. We'll have more next year, none planned at the minute, but you'll find them on our website and I'm really excited for them. Finally, a huge thanks to our podcast sponsor, Slinger. They make the great portable ball machine, which I'm sure you've seen all over Instagram and the web. They're grown tremendously. They're helping sponsor a lot of great tennis events. They help pay the podcast bills here as well as the producer who makes me sound good. So thank you very much, Slinger, and I look forward to working with you in 2021. I'll be taking a few weeks off the podcast in early 2020, but I'm really excited to get back podcast and I can't wait to bring you some great episodes in 2021. And finally, before we jump into our 10 great snippets, I wish you all a great end to the year and hoping 2021 can be many, many times better than 2020. Okay, here we go. We're going to start this off with Matt Little, who is Andy Murray's strength and conditioning coach for a very, very long time. But he gives us a quick look at Andy's road to becoming the world number one back in 2016, and a quick look into the mindset of his coach at the time, Ivan Lendl. That was a heck of a year, absolute roller coaster year. I mean, I think he was like, I think he was 8,000 points behind Novak at one stage um, after Indian Wells, Miami. And and just a few things clicked, you know, and a few things kind of dropped in the right place. Something flipped in his mind to just really go for it, start pushing. And he built momentum and more and more and more momentum. And just went, I think he went on two just amazing unbeaten runs. I think he hit his two longest winning streaks in the same year and it, yeah in between that we had a, a bit of a training block as well that he pushed really hard in which which I think actually saw him through the back end of the year the physical work he put in even in that summer in the midst of a of a long unbeaten run 
um, just crazy. Again, that work ethic, just crazy. Um, and then even right to the very wire at the, at the Masters finals that year, he had a brutal semi, I think, against uh, Ranich, which was just a crazy long match. I think he maybe played Nishikori that week Nishikori. as well in one of the longest matches I think there. so. Nishikori rings a, rings a bell. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, I could be wrong with that, but just off the charts and then has to play Novak in the final. We're like, oh my God, as if you didn't need another more brutal match to play Novak in the final to finish year-end world number one. And... Um, and so, obviously, the nerves around that match were just huge. Yeah. Uh, but he actually went out, and it was a fairly straightforward match compared to the matches he'd had that week. And I remember going back into the locker room afterwards, and Ivan, first thing he said was, yeah, this is good, but we need to get better. We oh, need to wow. be better next year, and he needs to be better, and this is how it needs to happen. Wow. And that, for me, that impacted me so much in terms of the mindset of, of, a, of, of an absolute god of our sport, you know, legend of the sport, a real natural-born winner, which Andy is as well, but Ivan clearly is, you know, a, a leader in that. But for that to be his mindset in the locker room, after all of that, after everything that had happened that year, I just, that blew me away. I, you know, I couldn't believe it and, and was so impressed, really. Two times French Open champion Sergei Bouguera tells us which of his wins at Roland Garros was his favourite and dealing with pressure. Well, of course, against Ajim. First of all, was I think the first the first final had everything, you know, that, that that you want to be in the final. I mean, like a very epic match, long match, that you're coming from behind and then being the final win. You play against the number one in the world. You play in the last two times champion that was uh, like unbeatable. I never beat him. And, uh, and then you play your best match and then, and then, and then you win. And so also plus is the first one, you know, and with the also I was uh, the favorite. I had the pressure of the, also uh, the favorite. And also that you were playing against te- teammate, you know, against the Spanish player, which is at a lot of pressure and he was playing well. So uh, it was more difficult match. And maybe you can tell us, we saw the US Open, the challenges team had and Zerif had to actually win it. They were struggling with nerves. What's it like, the difference of coming in against Jim, you're not the favourite, and then all of a sudden you're the favourite the next year? What sort of pressure does it just make it so much harder? Well, no, the, the second year with Jim, you know, I, I, I arrived also like very confident in, in the match. Once we started, you know, I felt, you know, I was that time I was a little bit over him because I win in, in four sets, but I thought I should win in three because I think he escaped with some medical shots in the third set. But um, I felt that I was I was better than him. And, uh, and, uh, and also it's true that the first, matches when you have to defend then was very difficult once you're were there in semi-finals then you you are just focused to win your matches not if you have to defend the the, the, the winner because you already like kind of uh, defend you already on semis you know irish tour coach and great storyteller joe o'dwyer tells us about sleeping in a train station while he was at the u.s open with jeff salzenstein joe great to have you jeff was who gave me the inspiration to get john here Obviously, I've known, I've seen you back in Ireland here a few times over the summers when you've been back and you've worked with James McGee and Conan Ireland and so many more players, which we'll talk about. But yeah, he was telling me a story about how you helped him break the top 100 
and how you were with him when he had a good run to US Open. And yeah, you mentioned you sleeping in a train station. Is that, that true story? That is a, yeah, a true story. Yeah, it was a, it was one, uh, something got really confused. I was going through a, a divorce at the time and I was in an argument. So the person I was meant to be staying with, I didn't get the telephone number. I had no way of getting out there. And, and Jeff had already gone for the day and I had no way of getting into a hotel or anything like that. Jeff usually took care of all the details on the financial side of things. I don't carry any money on me for those, uh, for obvious reasons. But yeah, I ended up sleeping in the uh, train station, went to the match the next day against Fernando Verdasco. We had the game plan. Jeff beat him 6-3, 6-1 in about, in about an hour. Played the best tennis of his life. I did the scouting report before on Fernando. He tanked his match because he was so confident in Washington the week before. He came up, he wanted to play in the US Open. He was 19, he was in the quarterfinals of that tournament. And after the match, he was in shock. And then Jeff left to go to the locker room. And all I heard, all I heard the smashing sound. I go, what's going on? It was like court 13. And I go around the back of the court and I take a look. And there's Fernando breaking every single racket that he had in his bag on the ground in frustration. And then as, of course, Jeff will tell you, uh, of course, he gets into the he gets into the main draw. He gets in as a lucky loser and he wins around. And we lost to a Razzie, I believe, in four sets. I think he gifted Moroccan. But that's a true story. There it is. That's one of his, one of his good winnings, yeah. The greatest tennis entertainer. Mansur Barami brought a tear to my eye when he told me about being a young kid in Iran and guards beating him up and breaking his tennis racket because he was playing a Western game. One day he said, Mansur, okay, I'm going to give you a, a, a good gift if you keep sending me the balls, you know, right balls and no, no spin and nothing. So I said, okay, I tried to be a, a good ball boy then and uh, he was giving his lessons and I worked, I don't know, seven, eight hours for him. And uh, after the end of the end of the day, he gave me a, a, a racket. He says, Mansur, here, I know how much you love to have a racket. Here, I'll give you a racket. That was the first racket I, I ever had. And uh, it was such a, a great moment for me. And I just couldn't sleep. I had, I bought another racket, you know, and I stringed myself with the strings that I had find in the, the pro shop there. And I did it myself and it was really something inimaginable. It was something impossible to play with. But I <laughs> came to the tennis with two, two rackets and I, I'm like dreaming about Wimbledon, Roland Garros, you know, and, and like I'm walking like this great players. And, uh, one of my friends said, Masu, let's go play. There's nobody here. It was an August day. Like it was 45 degrees, really 45 degrees. You would be very, very hot. People at that time of the year, they just stop working and uh, everything. They stop and they just go home and they have lunch and then they have siesta until four or five when it's cooling down. And then they come out and to uh, continue the life. And so we went to the tennis court, uh, both of us. He was allowed to play. I was not. It was like one in the afternoon. We had 13 courts there. All the courts were empty. So... I said, it's great. I'm so happy to go to the court. And I just imagining in my head that I am going to play the final of uh, French Open or final of Wimbledon. And I come to the court and we hit for like maybe 30, 40, maybe one minute. And so after one minute, I see myself 
surrounded by by the guards and, and uh, I can't run away. So I'm just trapped and uh, and one of these guys stops me and, and he grabs me and he, he hit me six, seven times on the floor. I swear to God, I think that, okay, I'm going to die today. This is my last day of my, my, my life. And I can't move anymore. I'm bleeding all over and the floor is big blood all over and and I see the guy going towards my rockets and I said I said please don't touch with my rockets leave my rockets alone the guy gave me a very nasty bad look and he just he put the rockets on the on the step and he smashed it with his foot and he broke them in two and that was the um, the first memory of my first racket. Renowned coach Nick Saviano tells us about his baptism into coaching just as he retired and he saw the energy and talent that was coming through the U.S. system. You know, when I came off the tour, I didn't go straight with the USTA. I did some work with the USTA. I had four years coaching individually by myself. And that went really well. But quite Candidly, my first training camp that I did, the USJ invited me, was 1984, and I had just come off the tour. And this is a true story. I go out on the court, and I'm still ranked in the top 100, and I'm playing this little guy, and he's 14 years old, Chinese descent. And so I think with this kid, I'm saying, wow, this kid is really good. And I'm going along and saying, I retired. The guy's 14 and I'm struggling a little bit. So anyway, that little guy was Michael Chang. So then, you know, I'm a little bit tired, you know, because of working hard. And so the next little guy comes out. He's just turned about to turn 15 and he's a little overweight. He's not been, but he's ripping the forehand, running me around strong as heck. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's a good thing I retired. And that was Jim Curry. So then I go and about to hit with another one. And this guy was another guy. And this was David Wheaton, who had gotten to 12 in the world. So I sit down, I'm thoroughly exhausted. True story. So the kids are standing around me. I think Pete Sampras was there as well. And I'm really tired. And they said, uh, have you hit with Andre yet? <laughs> it's a true story. And so... Uh, in the afternoon, I wind up on a serve court with Andre and another young man. And that was the first time I met Andre Agassi. He was 15 as well. So that was quite a baptism, so to speak, into uh, coaching. And when I ran into those guys, I said, you know what? It's good I retired. Join over 10,000 people who have downloaded our free match and practice PDFs over at functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. Our match and practice PDFs help you plan and evaluate your matches and practices. We have some other free downloads there for you too. So make sure you go over to functionaltennis.com forward slash downloads. This is a great snippet from Daria Abramovich, the psychologist of Iga Swoontech. And she gives us insight into Iga's preparation going into her final against Sophia Kennan. There's great bits of information here and it was amazing to see how she'd planned for different things that could arise. Here we go. Iga didn't need to do anything. Um, I know 
I know Sophia said um, that uh, because of Iga didn't play a Grand Slam final before and she, Sofia, did play, uh, Iga might be more stressed. And I like, you know, well, maybe yes, maybe no. Even, you know, at this point we can see that way that um, Iga doesn't need to do anything. Like she's, you know, uh, she had this success already and it's, it's great. And again, we did everything as we did before. If it did its job during match against Simone, against, against Martina Trevis and against Nadia Podoroska, why should we change something? So we just, you know, uh, warmed up, have had some fun, talk about the match, talk about the opponent and, uh, and play the match. And what it got, and, and what was different during this match, because there was a difference. Obviously, I'm talking just about mental point of view, my point of view, not about tennis itself. Um, was when Sofia took a medical timeout and went off court. Um, Iga didn't sit down on the bench. She just took balls and started to serve. And if you, if you can remember, she had some interaction with fans when she served well, they were clapping, um, and uh, she was laughing. She started looking, um, on the, to the audience. And it was, it wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't done on accident. It was, Plant. I just was, you know, sitting down and uh, nodding uh, in approval because um, she chose this way to release attention a little bit, to feel more all loosened up and confident. And after Sofia came back, Iga didn't lose a game. So I think it's it did its job again. If you haven't listened to the Yanko Tipsarvage episode, you should add it to your playlist. It was an amazing episode and the feedback we got was crazy. But in this section, Yanko goes deep and breaks down willpower and habits. He talks about the importance of them and how they work together. Really interesting the analogy of the muscle. Makes a lot of sense. Here we go. I'm a big, big believer, Fabio, in habits, in creating big habits. Because I believe that every human or every person has a certain amount of willpower. Some of us have it more. Some of us have it less. But willpower by itself, uh, imagine it as a muscle. So a muscle only has a certain amount of energy to do stuff, whether if it's to whatever, lift weights or run or do whatever you, you can. And then at the end of the day, that muscle is empty. There's no more energy in it. Imagine willpower in the same capacity. So if you need to tap into the well of willpower to use this to think about, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? The amount of productivity that you're going to have is going to be incredibly small as in comparison to put in the work that you create habits instead of thoughts. Because when we do our habits, which we don't think about, we don't tap into the well of willpower to use it to do stuff. This can be as easy as brushing our teeth in the morning in terms of a good habit. You do it, but you don't spend any energy thinking about should I do it or should I not do it? You just do it because it's a habit, which you created exactly as you said, 
over the course of time, repeating it from your parents when you were young one million times. This is exactly the same thing, and it's very applicable in anything in life. Also, when we're talking about tennis. So if you put in the work, as you just mentioned, you create a force of habit that even later on in your stress environment on the match, when all the emotions are kicking in, you still do something without thinking. Therefore, you don't spend energy. I went too much into psychology right now, but this is something I really deeply believe in. It was unbelievable to get the chance to speak to former world number four, Robin Sutterling. And in this extract, he talks about his mental health struggles and how he dealt with them. Again, this is another episode you should listen to if you get the chance over the Christmas break. Uh, I mean, uh, patience. Um, you know, in the beginning, I was just looking for something, you know, to see a doctor who could give me a pill or an injection and I would feel great the day after and, and start moving on with my life. But after a while, you know, I realized that uh, this is going to take time. I just have to be patient and try to change my whole mindset and my um my whole life basically it's a it's a life journey to recover and sometimes i feel like i'm it's it's difficult to say that i'm grateful for what happened to me you know of course i wish it would never happen but in one way i'm like i don't think i would be the person i am today if i if i hadn't gone through all those you know seven eight really tough years um so in one way i'm i'm i'm, I'm a little bit grateful uh, again, because I learned a lot. I'm a completely different person uh, now compared to when I when I played. You sound I I don't know what you were like before. You sound a bit more relaxed now, mellow. Would that be true? Yeah, I think so. I try to not take everything uh, so serious, you know. And of course, it's easier when I when I'm not playing anymore. Uh, and uh, you know, one. Uh, one thing that really helped me, maybe the thing that that helped me the most was, you know, to talk to. I had two friends, one uh, who was a really good triathlete, one of the best in the world. He 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 had been through uh, a similar thing. You know, it took him four or five years to recover. And I spoke a lot to him and also another friend who, who didn't do sport, but he was just having uh, working too much with his companies for many years and he got burned out himself and I talked to them a lot and again you know it's um, now speaking to someone that has been been through it and they were both they were both healthy again and feeling great it helped me a lot because of course there was many days where I thought okay this is never gonna be good I'm gonna have a shit life for the rest of my life and that was maybe the the most or that was for sure the most difficult thoughts to 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 handle and to live with i had to check my notes on how to pronounce our next snippet from piotr shirpatoski piotr is another member of team swoontech he's Iga's coach and he tells us about the build-up to the start of roland garris and what Iga changed mentally going into her first round really interesting stuff you know, it was like Iga made a great preseason this year for this unusual year, let's say. Uh, and it was, I would call it, first preseason, which she did from start to the end, like fully healthy, uh, as most of our 
preparation time was after injury. So this time she was feeling really, really good, really well prepared and everything. So she had a lot of expectation at the beginning of the season for herself, by herself. So it wasn't easy for, for her to understand that everybody did a job and nothing is for free on the court. You have to fight for everything. So beginning was really tough for her. She was really tight and we went to US and the result wasn't as she expected after such a great preparation. So then we came came here to, to Rome to, to Europe and she played much better at this time. But let's say, let's say Arancha Ruiz's opponent of her was like 100% at the day when you have to take this match like really, really serious. And if you make few mistakes, you're gonna, you're gonna let her win. So it wasn't Iga's day. She, she played way better than in US, but again, there was a lot of expectation because Iga loves to play on clay. And for her, it's her surface. She loves to be there. She she likes Rome. So so she felt like, okay, I have to do a great result here. And then we had a big conversation in our team. We work with psychologists and it's more like, you know, the time when you have to talk about it, like talk about expectation, about results and that there is nothing for free. Everybody understands it, but when you go to the court, it's not not always there, like the fire in your eyes and the, I would call it killer instinct or tiger instinct that you have to fight for every single ball and stay in the rally. And uh, Iga, let's say, she said that she sees it, that it's like she has to change some way of thinking. We came back home to rest a little bit and what she changed before Roland Garros was for sure expectations. I said to her, you have forced fourth round from the last year, which is great result. So let's go, let's have fun. Let's, let's play, let's compete. Let's see how it goes, but with no expectation at all. And I think it was like the most important part of, of the change between Rome and Roland Garros. Our final snippet is with legendary coach Paul Anacone and he tells us about the famous 2001 match between Federer and Sampras, so-called passing of the guards match where Federer beat Sampras in five sets and the Federer dynasty soon started. Here we go. It was amazing, you know, I mean, I knew Roger, knew who he was as a player, knew he was extremely talented and I wasn't sure he was ready yet to do it three out of five sets against someone as great as Pete. And he proved me and a lot of other people wrong. You know, on that day, I saw his immense talent and what he's capable of. I didn't know it would turn into what it's turned into. But as I sat there and watched, I just saw a young man who had, you know, an incredible toolbox of skills. And and um, it was really amazing. You know, it was bittersweet on that day because I felt terrible for Pete you know, to lose seven, five or six, four in the fifth, whatever it was. But it was, it was a great moment to see two amazing athletes compete on the world's most uh, storied arena. Had Pete obviously under, undermined Federer at all? He hadn't prepared enough. Was there any of that going on? No, no, no. I, I think, look, we, look, I, Pete's pretty good about research and I'm really good about research. So I felt pretty confident about what needed to be done. Um, and it's not like Pete played a bad match. Um, so I didn't feel like we missed anything uh, after the match. I always like to go back and kind of relive what, what we did in terms of preparation and was the strategy right or wrong. And, and on that day, 
I think he played, you know, he didn't play great tennis, but he didn't play terrible tennis. And uh, Roger won more of the big points. And back in those days, that was a pretty standard uh, operating procedure. If you win the big points on grass, you're going to put yourself in a position to win more often than the other person. And, And Roger did a terrific job. That's it for 2020. There's so many more great episodes and bits of advice from all the episodes. You should definitely check them out, but I can't thank all the guests enough and all the listeners. I'll be back in 2021. If you do have a favorite moment, please let me know what it is. But until our next episode, have a great new year, great start to 2021, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.